This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Gen Con 2016. 2016's Gen Con. This year's Gen Con. And the Gen Con we are just back from. Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Cannon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardis to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. So, hey everybody, uh, you may note a particularly gravelly tone in our voices. Uh, because we are back from Gen Con. Uh, in our time reality, we have been back for one day. So uh, my day has been spent uh, on all sorts of miscellaneous catch-up tasks. I, I, I thought that I would possibly have a nap can, but it didn't work out. didn't happen. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> Amateur hour. Yeah. I, I, well, yes. it's method acting. My, my day was spent in a nap, followed by a long night's sleep. There we go. And I'm Getting ready to schedule my next nap after this podcast is recorded. Well, you definitely know how to do it because you have Virgil to act as your consultant. I do. I, 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 it's, you get, you know what? You want the results. You hire the best experts. You hire a consultant. <laughs> Don't do this on your own, people. Don't be a hero out there. Right. My argument here is that I'm uh, method acting. Uh, I haven't taken my nap, so I'm going to sound like I'm still at Gen Con and unable to do things like weave together complete sentences or yes. find um, <laughs> memories <laughs> or any of those or things. Pron- or pronounce words. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the Words and memories, those, those aren't important for podcasting, are they? <laughs> That's, I know. I, as I learned at the podcasting panel, all you need to do is be wonderful, and the podcast will just happen. Oh, because I was on a podcasting panel with the wonderful, uh, your fellow Canadian, the wonderful Alex Roberts, and she uh, was wonderful. And who wouldn't want to listen to Alex Roberts? So if between the two of us we can be that wonderful, I'm sure it'll all work out, regardless of your depth of Stanislavskian method. Oh, there we which go. I don't recommend. <laughs> <laughs> no. So uh, I guess we might be even a little punchier than every other time we've done this uh, because uh, we went there earlier and worked a little harder. We uh, arrived uh, early enough to have a day devoted to uh, Palgrane Summit uh, because in past years we've tried to have a business meeting at the end of Gen Con 
on the uh, <laughs> day before we all had it. So if you've ever wondered, why did Pelgrane do that? The answer <laughs> is we've held our business meeting while everyone was in a state of North Korean sleep deprivation. Yes. And, and worried about whether they were going to uh, get to the airport or not. So, uh, so we did a whole full day of meetings, which of course the contents of which would not be particularly podcast worthy, but there's all sorts of cool things in the hopper there. Uh, but it means that also on Wednesday, uh, we were uh, in Indy right from the jump with uh, not, uh, we certainly weren't going to go and help with setup, were we? <laughs> no, we were not. Robin may be an amateur, but he's not a, not a, fool. a, 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 a fresh-faced amateur. Yes. Um, so we had a, a day of loose ends, so we recorded the podcast that you heard last week, and uh, we also recorded a whole bunch of cool interviews, which we'll be rolling out uh, over the next little while. We uh, so it'll mean we'll have a, more interview segments coming in the weeks ahead. Hopefully that won't break the format of the show too much because they're all really great interviews. And uh, so you can look forward to, let's see how many of them you can remember. Uh, if we were interviewed you and we don't mention you <clears throat> post Gen Con, but uh, we talked to uh, Emily Kerr Boss about her work on Bubble Gumshoe. That'll be the first one in the hopper. Uh, Hal Mangold gave a really great in-depth look at both art directing and layout. I think you'll find that really solid, especially if you're interested in how the industry works. We had uh, Chris Spivey in to tell us about his uh, work with uh, me and Ruth Tillman on Gumshoe One-to-One, and that's uh, give you a cool uh, vantage point on uh, someone uh, breaking in and uh, being sucked into the Pelgrane Vortex. Who else, who else am I forgetting here? We had, of course, the lovely and talented Jeff Tidball come on and talk about uh, Magic Shoe, uh, the blend of Ars Magica and Gumshoe. A lot of people want to know about that. Apparently, they had a really full panel of people uh, seeking the facts on Magic As Shoe. Indeed and they should. And they were... We had the lovely Luke Crane oh, yeah. uh, for Kickstarter um, and uh, Burning Wheel and all the other things that Luke Crane has uh, provided to uh, the industry and the hobby and to me personally, uh, just by being uh, one of the, uh, the most uh, acerbic and easily irritated of my friends. Uh, <laughs> the entertainment value from talking to Luke is is it's really high. He he brings it in a way that other <laughs> more forgiving uh, interlocutors do not. Yeah, let's he's, just say uh, his episode will have to have the explicit tag on it. <laughs> yes, yes, it will. <laughs> As though I could have predicted it. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fairness, we didn't warn him ahead of time. No. <laughs> that, that would have ruined it. We, want the, we don't want the 75% yes. Luke Crane. We want the full no. Luke Crane. Everyone wants full Luke Crane. Yes. Not for topical use. Uh, we had uh, Epidai Ravichal to talk about uh, Worlds Without Master and uh, exactly. his great career as a designer. Uh, so there's all sorts of uh, groovy uh, interview segments for you to look forward uh, We had to. Will Hindmarch, for God's sake. Oh, Will Hindmarch. That Don't was so leave good. Will Hindmarch so out. What is wrong one? with you? I know what's wrong with you. You haven't slept. That is exactly good what's Lord, wrong with Robin. You. We had Will Hindmarch to talk about music in gaming. Uh, right. We weren't talking with him about any of his magnificent game projects. Uh, we, well, we may have brought it up, but Will is one of the best uh, GMs I've ever played under, and one of the tools in his arsenal that I am incapable of using is music, thematic music, a soundtrack, basically a score, if you will, uh, for his gaming sessions. And I wanted to unlock that technology for all of you. Yes, he reveals the big secret, so you can look forward to that. Yep. It was not the big secret I would have expected. So, after our uh, day of interviews, you went off to uh, St. Elmo's. D- did they serve you steak? 
I went out technically because St. Elmo's is under construction or reconstruction. Oh, really? They're, they're, they're doing stuff at it. Uh, it may just be tuck pointing, but they got the scaffolding and all, and all manner of things up in the front. And, uh, I, when I tell you that the person who is in charge of getting rooms for Gen Con, so a person who could walk into any establishment in Indianapolis with, um, uh, the promise of a $15 million payday in his pocket can't get a table. You can't get a table. Uh, St. Elmo's was booked months in advance, uh, for Gen Con. So we had to go to Harry and Izzy's, which is the, uh, partner restaurant attached to St. Elmo's. It's the same steak. They source the steak from the same place. For all I know, they make it in the same kitchen, but the menu is different. Uh, and sort of, and the ambiance is not the classic steakhouse ambiance. It's more, you know, sort of a restaurant that would have been built maybe this century ambiance. Although when I was uh, learning about, uh, Harry and Izzy's, I went on their about page and it's like, uh, Harry, uh, and I'm going to get the last names wrong, which is probably for the best. Um, but Harry Rosen, uh, was a uh, Chicago ophthalmologist and he had relatives in Indiana and those relatives built a restaurant and Harry came back from Chicago and took it over. And Izzy Stone, let's again, uh, last name is probably wrong, was an area bookmaker who became a full partner. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, goodness me. He was a well, there you with are. A pinky ring. Yes. And then there's pictures and he's got the big tie and the, and the fatty arbuckle slap you around attitude. And it's like, this is, this, well, I love this restaurant even more now that I know that it was <laughs> Nap City's top mobsters that ran it at some point. And so Harry and Izzy's is, of course, named after uh, the partners that used to run St. Elmo's and then I suppose ran a bar next door that eventually became Harry and Izzy's. And wow, did that add a uh, piquance to my understanding of that block, which is now far and away my favorite block in Indianapolis. That, that, that does, uh, does increase its sheen. So we'll get more uh, back to food later, but... Uh uh, we're looking at Wednesday, and that Wednesday, of course, uh, for industry folk is when you go to the first event of Gen Con and ruin your voice for the rest of the show by going to the Diana Jones Awards reception. And this year, the list of nominees, first of all, was, I think, perhaps the toughest group uh, to choose between. I would have been delighted to see any of the winners take it. They're, they're all incredible nominees. Yeah, it was a, it was a real uh, all-star lineup. We had Contessa, the right. sort of con within a con that is uh, helping to uh, build a new world for uh, women in gaming. We had the uh, LARP Writer Summer School, which is, uh, I think it's sort of a co-project of Norway and uh, uh, Belarus, and there's some Lithuanians in there, and I, I'm sure all other sorts of scans... Uh, but they get together and uh, uh, teach LARP and send LARPers out uh, throughout the world, even like into Syria and stuff. So uh, that was an incredible choice. We had uh, The Fall of Magic, the brilliant story game that uh, bases itself on the unfolding of a map. Of a beautiful scroll. A beautiful scroll. Uh, we had uh, Pandemic Legacy, which is uh, two great flavors in one. The uh, cooperative classic game uh, Pandemic uh, retooled uh, with that fascinating legacy style uh, campaign play and that was by Rob Davio and Matt Leacock and then finally we had the winner Eric M. Lang so I'm proud to say that the Perspex Pyramid has returned to Toronto to improve its feng shui for uh, another year. You know, I, I can't speak for shadowy members of the cabal, can can you? No, no, obviously that would be an act of presumption. Yeah. And, and if there's anything a shadowy cabal despises, it's presumption. Exactly. But 
it was super difficult to choose between, uh, I would have been happy to see any of those five win, but sort of the answer to why support Eric Lang is just why hasn't he won already? And he's been, he's been nominated, uh, in, in the past for a particular game, but he's just an incredible force of nature. The period for which the awards are, uh, sort of technically centered the previous year, uh, 2015, he had four games come out. This year at Gen Con, he had four games come out. And as uh, the writer of the encomium to him on the Diana Jones site says, these aren't just all hashed out and rushed to market, or nor are they like cookie-cutter versions of the last things. Uh, he works with incredible collaborators, and uh, his body of work is just really sort of jaw-dropping. And I think sort of part of that is just he kind of competes with himself. And so finally, uh, I think that it's great to see him uh, recognized, uh, not just for his crazy body of work this year, but for his whole uh, incredible career. So I was very, very happy to see uh, Eric and a nicer guy you could not possibly ask for. Yeah, Eric is... I, I've known Eric uh, since he was a, a very, very new designer. And I, I don't know if it was his first design, but it was the first design that he told me about was a role-playing game that was going to use tarot and have a tarot mechanic in it. And I looked at it and I thought, this is a really interesting start. And I think that there's some real stuff in here. And I told him about some of the challenges involved in role-playing game design and gave him, hopefully, uh, some hints. And whatever I said uh, discouraged him from ever doing role-playing games. <laughs> you, you, were, you were a brilliant consultant on that front. So, speaking as a time traveler, well done, Ken, because I don't need that kind of competition. He is... And he, he's, he's so, he's, he's just a great human being as well, which is irrelevant, but well, it's irrelevant to a game design award. Where am I going with this? <laughs> the larger point being that there is an argument to be made, and I would make it that Eric is the best board game designer, pound for pound, project for project in the world today. And obviously there are many other great board game designers out there, uh, many of whom have done games that I play more often than I necessarily play all of Eric's or any, any one of Eric's, but every single one of Eric's games, you play it. And just as a game designer, you're amazed. And as a player, you're having a great time. And just the ability that he has to use this really broad vocabulary. Um, some designers, they get, they have two or three tricks and they do them really, really well. And you're like, okay, that's, that's another Reiner Knizia game. And you're okay. I get it. And you follow him through his, his little math and whatever. Even James Ernest is, is someone who's, who you can sort of look at and you can say, all right, here is the James Ernest line of country, which is a beautiful fortified line of country. But Eric just covers the whole map and you have no idea when you open the box of an Eric Lang game, what kind of experience you're going to have, except it's going to be a great one and it's going to be a great game experience. And you're not even going to know what's going to happen because I think Eric has this Catholic tendency and this ability to sort of grab onto pieces of all kinds of other uh, best of breed game designs and sort of pull them through the thematic richness of whatever property he's doing or whatever story the game is meant to tell and, and lay it out in a way that when you see it, you're like, well, why doesn't, why didn't everyone do that already? Why are, why are there sucky games in this space or on this topic? Because Eric just, he makes it look effortless. It's like Fred Astaire. It's you because know. if even if he's doing four games a year, that all the game companies can't hire him to do their games. So that's why there are sucky games because. Yeah, that's right. Because there, there can't be other Eric's. Eric. But maybe, maybe people should just sit quietly and, and wait for Eric to design their game. I guess we should name some specific games. So games that he had out at this year's Gen Con are. Bloodborne the card game, 
the others, Seven Sins, Arcane Academy, which was a collaboration with Kevin Wilson, and HMS Dolores, which he did in collaboration with Bruno Faduti. Um, uh, my favorite Eric game, although it's not like there is a shortage of choices, my favorite Eric game is Chaos in the Old World. And this is not one where I come to it as a giant Warhammer fantasy fan. I come to it as someone who literally has not spent two seconds thinking about Warhammer fantasy when they weren't playing Chaos in the Old World. And it's just an astonishingly good game. And it really opened my eyes to how good he was, you know, at everything, because it's a game that's compiled of a bunch of other little mini games, any one of which, if it hadn't worked, the game would spiral out of control. They all work. It's that level of control. But he's recently done uh, the XCOM board game, which I, since I actually care about that franchise, I, I want to uh, find that and play that. He's done uh, Dice Masters, if people are fans of collectible dice games. He did that one. Quarriers was one of the titles that is one of his big uh, titles. It's a great game, obviously. Like, I need to tell anyone that. He did a living card game, or I guess it's a trading card game, uh, Call of Cthulhu, uh, which I haven't played because... I'm generally not a, a collectible cards guy or a trading cards game guy, but I, you know, it's in that space and it's super good and it's still, it's still in existence, which I think means it's better than virtually all other trading card games. Although they may have just stopped the LCG this year, but anyway, it, it lasted forever. It went through like 50 expansions or something. So it's, it's a really strong title. And of course he's done a hundred games in his career, you know, either solo or in a strong collaboration with another designer. So. Yeah, you could, we could fill a whole podcast just talking about how great Eric is. And it is worth mentioning how great Eric is. Well, in, in order to stop filling an entire podcast, let's break for a uh, commercial message and then we'll be right back with our observations, starting with the actual start of the show. <laughs> The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, 
annotated by the MI6, and the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. Okay, so we're back, and I guess uh, the next thing we should talk about is sort of the overall vibe of the show, and of course, as people who park uh, at a stand when we're not doing seminars, our impression of Gen Con is of the exhibit hall, and that's another thing that we've said on past wrap-up shows, is that there isn't any one Gen Con. There's all, you know, dozens of different Gen Cons you can have, but ours is focused on uh, the exhibit hall, and the big difference this year was that they uh, now that they've moved, I think the card games are now in the Lucas Oil Stadium. That made a lot more room for the exhibitors, and that was a huge, huge boon because it allowed uh, existing companies to buy bigger booths in addition to allowing additional people to take booths. And so what that meant is that the crowd uh, packing in the aisles was nowhere near as oppressive as it has been in, in past years. The last couple of years, it was just a nightmare to get to one spot or another in the hall. And now finally, there was space to move throughout. And I think that was a, a huge plus in being able to enjoy the show and being able to make sure that you saw everything that there was to see. I, I read somewhere that there were 40% more exhibitors on the floor, which is, how, I guess, a factor of how much more space there was. And the lived experience of walking in the, in the, uh, Exhibit Hall was vastly better than it was last year. The extra space, you know, you could really feel it in the aisles. Um, and previously last year, it seemed like you, you simply couldn't move through the, the halls. It was at a snail's pace. This year, even when there was lines and major events, you could always wire around it. And it was, uh, it was inconvenient, but it was not just, it didn't shut the whole middle of the show down the way that, uh, it did last year over and over and over and over again. And, uh, so that was terrific. Uh, when we talk about the other shows, though, I want to mention something. We've talked previously about, like you say, Gen Con is a bunch of different Gen Cons now. So Will Hindmarch and James Ernest and I are, have, have broken our, our traverse home from Gen Con in a, in an area bar, uh, near O'Hare. And, uh, we're checking, they're, they're, they're looking at phones and I'm looking at basically a Moscow mule made with Jamisons. And, um, <laughs> as long as you just look at it, that's fine. And, and someone says, Oh my God, look at this. And I forget if it was Willard or, or James, but they, they, they got their phone and they've pulled up the Instagram account. And on Instagram, they have the hashtags like you have hashtags everywhere. And there's a hashtag for Gen Con. And the top thing on Instagram hashtag Gen Con was of, I don't know, maybe she was 22, 25 year old girl cosplaying as a character that I have no idea who it was because not a 22 year old girl. Um, and her, First lines of her little caption to her post was Gen Con was lit. And if you made a list of all the adjectives <laughs> in the English and quasi English language and asked me to rank them in likeliness of being applied to Gen Con, lit would have been well towards the bottom. Yeah, it's even more woke than it is lit. And it's <laughs> yes. well, really woke. woke, I think, is still way down below lit. <laughs> yeah. But even the fact that Gen Con was lit at all. I mean that there is a lit Gen Con going on somewhere, Robin, and uh, I, I I would resent it if regular Gen Con didn't nearly kill me every year. I don't think I can handle lit Gen Con anymore. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, there's 
there's because of the the rise of cosplay, because of the general rise in media convention attendance, and because of the final barriers to uh, uh, women in in role playing games and in gaming generally beginning to to come down. Uh, we are getting a little, uh, you know, I would say maybe a, a a small nub, but a but a growingly important part of Gen Con is now. Uh, it's basically Dragon Con. It's it's a place for for young people to go, and they have their cosplay hobby, and they maybe do some gaming, and they do some other stuff, and they run around and they have fun, and it's and it's lit for God's sake, and that's a whole new thing that is going on, and that of course is part of what drives Gen Con's attendance up this year. Uh, their attendance was practically flat. It was sixty thousand and change, which is about what it was last year in terms of uniques. But the uh, turnstile attendance, you know, people who come in and out. Uh, that went up to two hundred thousand and plus. So, so how do we parse that? What is the significance of the u- uniques being sort of flat and the turnstiles being up? What does that tell us? Um, I, I think that what that means is that people who bought Gen Con badges—it's the same basic number that I believe that they were trying to um, uh, to hold those down because they've reached the carrying capacity of Indianapolis at some level, right. but but. The people, once they get them, they are doing more things in more places, maybe coming more days. Is it, does that make sense? Right. We'll have to ask Peter next time we see him. Yeah. The, the, you, we have, we have, um, we have certainly passed my ability to know what's going yeah. on. We shouldn't just get hugs from Con. Peter. We should get an ex- explanation. Yeah, we should get information from Peter or maybe an interview. Turnstile and, uh, and unique. Um, but not, at any rate. Not that I don't want a hug from Peter, obviously, Peter, if you're listening, you know, your hugs are the highlight of Gen Con for us, but. Hugs and data. We, we, we've got to get us a Peter Atkinson who can do both. And I'm sure we've got to get us a Peter Atkinson who can do both. We got to get us a lit Peter Atkinson. <laughs> oh, not just, Peter, not just Peter was lit before any of the rest Peter of us were lit. Peter was lit before lit was lit. Yes. Yes. And that's how I know it would kill me to have a lit Gen Con. Right. Yeah. <laughs> a lit Origins nearly killed me. So imagine how lit a Gen Con would have to be. So by mentioning attendance, yes. we've um, moved, I guess, to another. Uh, uh, connected yet inevitable topic, and that is the future of the show. So the mm-hmm. difficulty now is that there is no more hotel space in Indy. They built a new hotel a while back, the JW Marriott, or the Marriott chain did, right? The city didn't. But there is only so much opportunity for people to get rooms, and now people that we've known for years and years who are uh, staple attendees of the show are unable to make it or unable to hit more than one day just because it has grown so much that it can't conceivably really grow any bigger in Indianapolis. There isn't, uh, we didn't see a bunch of empty lots where they would build new hotels and you can't build a new hotel in a day. And the, uh, we've stretched the boundary of the city. So are we headed somewhere else in the future? Do you think Ken? Um, I, I think here's the question that Gen Con has to be asking themselves. And the question has to be, what, what do they want to run? Do they want to run a Gen Con that stays at 60,000 people, 65,000 people maybe forever, which they could do simply by raising badge costs until you get fewer people signing up and there you go, you're done. Or do they want to try and push it through the next barrier and, you know, which is probably a hundred thousand people. Let's, I, I think that a hundred thousand person Gen Con is completely imaginable. Um, there's certainly more than that who want to go to Gen Con and who, if they could, would. And for that, it has to move to a larger city. And if you remember a couple of years ago on the Gen Con website, there was a little poll and it went up and it was, hey, kids, we're signed in for Indianapolis through 2019 or whatever year it is, um, 2019, 2020, something like that. But 
if we were to move to make Gen Con bigger and perhaps more accessible, what cities would you, what city would you maybe like to see it in? And there was a list of a bunch of cities and there was Orlando, Florida and Las Vegas and whatever else, uh, New York maybe. And one of the cities on the list is Chicago. And obviously all right thinking people want Gen Con to go to Chicago because then they can sleep in their own bed with their own cat and then go to Gen Con. But, but, but Ken, would you, would you <laughs> really, how long would it, how long does it take to get from Virgil to the convention center? 20 minutes if the train is running. Oh, and how long does the train run? Uh, well, that's the problem, but <laughs> I, you, are by you the telling time, me you're not going to be up till 4 a.m. Ever, ever? By the time the, well, the train starts running again. That's the trick. Ah. <laughs> uh, also, um, the, uh, uh, they, they have this, uh, thing called an Uber. And it, by the time that uh, Gen Con is in Chicago, I will have, I'll, I'll get me one of them Uber phones, little Uber. Oh, and so, so are you telling me that you'll get a smartphone if you, if it uh, arrives? If it comes to Chicago, if Gen Con comes to Chicago, you heard I'll, it here I'll first. get a smartphone. Uh, That's people, my promise. Ken will give up to the 21st century. Uh, original series communicator. Uh, if yes. it goes, well, that's all the reason I need to go to Chicago. To exactly. And sell one person at a time. That's the there secret. But if Gen Con wants to stay in the American Midwest and thus reasonably equally accessible and convenient to everyone in the, in the States and in Canada, really. Right. And then also stay true to its sort of roots as the Midwest's, you know, Fonzette Origo of role playing games, then Chicago is literally the only game in town. There is no other city in the Midwest that has the capacity to hold a hundred thousand person convention. And it would mean direct Chicago's McCormick for, for lots of uh, folks. Absolutely, it's a hub both national and international for many airlines. Um, and uh, Chicago's McCormick Place is the largest, I think, convention center in North America. If it's not, it's second. Um, I, 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 you hear different things about the Javits Center, but a Gen Con in Chicago obviously could spread out over the city. Uh, McCormick is, is very accessible. And if Gen Con were coming, the city of Chicago would get serious about, you know, adding more, uh, restaurants and more other sorts of, uh, facilities right down by McCormick because they would know they would have to feed a bunch of people who are not necessarily, um, uh, scattered around the, 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 the six counties, the way that if you come in for the car show or something, you might be because they're going to be there for many, many days, not just one day attendees. So uh, Chicago, I know is very serious about getting Gen Con. I know that they've been putting the, um, uh, the, the hard sell on, on Peter and, and on Gen Con. I know that they want it to happen. And in Chicago, traditionally, what they want uh, has a much better chance of suddenly becoming legal uh, than what they don't want. <laughs> so if Rahm Emanuel wants it enough, it's going to happen. Well, there's a big question about Chicago. And let's introduce a note of momentary suspense by going to commercial and then coming back to the question people always ask about Gen Con in Chicago. Ken, 
Who are the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Jason Franzella. Andrew Collins. Gary Blunt. Morgan Ellis. And Neil Dalton. Okay, we're back, and that question with Gen Con in Chicago, our industry has something of a, I've got a booth, I've got some books, let's put on a show, do-it-yourself sort of mantra, yet Chicago, of course, is a bastion of uh, unionism, and famously, if you've ever been at a show that operates under union rules, that you, as an exhibitor, can't carry so much as a box without incurring some serious uh, union math, or, or at least that's been... Uh, my experience uh, of a couple of, of a decade and a half ago. So, how is Chicago's union ethos and the uh, sort of DIY beyond, behind the radar uh, approach of traditional game companies going to fit together? Well, I think that that is where uh, the city of Chicago is competing with other cities for a lot of convention business, and obviously, uh, this does not only annoy uh, Gen Con. Uh, exhibitors. It, uh, I'm sure it annoys the guys who exhibit at the pipe fitters convention or the, or the plumbing company convention. I, I think maybe those guys might be more down with the union. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I misspoke by an odd coincidence. The percussionist um, union. The, 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 the plumbing convention, the, 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 you know, and many of the other sales conventions, the, 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 the uh, restaurant association conventions in Chicago every year. Um, lots of these guys, I am sure have, um, hey, I'm just trying to sell skewers. I can carry my own box of skewers and set up my booth. Uh, I don't need a bunch of union guys carrying my skewers. And I'm sure that this is a constant uh, matter of friction. And as Chicago is now competing with Orlando and now competing with Las Vegas, which it used to never have to compete with, it's competing probably even now with L.A. I think L.A. just built a convention center, as well as Seattle for trade and tech and uh, plenty of other regional cities in other regions. They have almost certainly begun to introduce special cases and best practices into that. And it will be, it will, it'll never be cheaper to hold a show in a union town than in a uh, non-union town. That's just because unions exist to raise costs for, you know, their own the obviously good, their good workers, reasons. Yeah. Um, that said, <laughs> you, you compete uh, uh, on more things than just price. So the question facing Peter and the city and one assumes uh, whoever the Teamsters or whoever are the, the sort of lead union in these kind of negotiations, how badly do you want all this extra business? And if 
uh, in Chicago traditionally, if everyone wants some extra business, hands are shook and the business gets done. And the question is, is Gen Con serious enough about wanting to become a hundred thousand person convention, hundred thousand member convention, hundred thousand fan convention that it wants to pay the extra because Gen Con will also have to pay some extra. They'll either have to subsidize the exhibit, small exhibitors, or they'll have to um, cover some of the costs. They'll have to deal with it. it. Even if they don't have to pay extra, they'll have to deal with it in headaches because there's always going to be someone who thinks they can outsmart um, uh, the Teamsters <laughs> and, and and is not currently already buried under Metal, Meadowlands Stadium. So I think that it's going to be a, a an ongoing cost and it's going to be a real cost, but it's, it's going to be what it costs to be a, 100,000 person convention in Chicago and not a 60,000 person convention in Indianapolis. And, and that is the question I think that Gen Con is going to have to ans- answer for itself is what show do they want? Do they want to have literally the biggest gaming show in the world? Do they want to beat Essen? Do they want to beat all the other shows forever and ever? Amen. Uh, do they want to take advantage of this expanding potential membership? Which, keep in mind, if you want young people to come to your show, you can't raise ticket prices too much. Yeah, and there are lots of people who can't afford Gen Con as it is, so you want to yeah. keep it affordable. Exactly. So, you know, if that's the if that's the direction you go, then yeah, maybe you have to kick in a couple more bucks to to keep the uh, Teamsters happy. And you know, by and large, that seems like a reasonable cost to get to have the greatest. Uh, four days in gaming in the greatest city in the world. Right, because it's, the choice isn't necessarily between Indy the way it is this second and Chicago, but Indy's going to wind up changing. Like, the hotels are going to continue to jack up their rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the hotel costs are even, I think, more an issue than the uh, you know badge costs, certainly. And capitalism, folks, if there's this incredible demand and they know that they can book everything, what you do then when you're overbooked is you raise your rates. So... Uh, if you think it's hard to get a hotel room now, it may uh, get harder and harder in Indy as uh, the years go on. Now, we jumped ahead a bit, and I know you wanted to talk a bit more about the overall vibe of the show. So uh, what uh, what thoughts do you have on that front? Well, I mean, I think that we, uh, from our uh, position at Pograin, saw uh, very enthusiastic, happy gamers. Uh, I certainly never interacted with anyone who didn't have the most ridiculously fulsome and delightful praise uh, for for me and for you. Yeah. So the only um, complaint I really heard was a, a couple of people who went to a game and the GM didn't show up, which is something yeah. that's totally beyond anybody's control. You know, possibly. Well, that, except for that loser GM. Right. It's so in their control. Yeah. Well, so either loser GM flaked or they were in the emergency after uh, swallowing a, a D12 or something. But uh, <laughs> that is that is a that is a shame because that can do real damage. They have a rash of that uh, yeah. at, at Gen Con week at the India hospitals. But uh, other than that, uh, I didn't. I'm, I'm sure now we're inviting people to comment on their organizational difficulties that they had with the show. But uh, uh, on the uh, loose statistical basis of complaints that I personally received, that was the uh, complaint that I heard. Yeah. And in terms of um, uh, organizational uh, and and it, this may just be a factor of us having come in early, but the lines for things, uh, for registration and sign up and everything, looked relatively handleable. I, I did hear that the GM's line was longer than it's ever been before. That Although that may GM- have been because there are so many more events this year. Yeah. There was an insane amount of events. There was 100,000 events, I think, or more. Um, I, I know there was 100,000. That would be the floor of what it was. Because uh, Derek Guter, who is the, G, uh, the the event uh, coordinator, guru uh, god of Gen Con, uh, posted, well, 
Now we have 85,000 events. Surely we're, oh, no, nope. Now we have nine. Nope. And I remember seeing a, a post from him about 100,000 events. And I then went to Gen Con and did not, um, uh, uh follow, uh, Derek on Twitter as avidly as I do when I'm lying around. Uh, and so, you know, Lord knows what the end event total was, but it was vastly bigger than it has ever been. And so if, which is good because you want GMs running events. That's the core of Gen Con. Right. Um, so the, uh, it, it seemed, uh, generally well run and, uh, gamers certainly were happy. And the great thing about, uh, Gen Con is that it gives us the opportunity to remember that gaming is about something we love. That mm-hmm. if you just experience gaming through people talking about it on the internet, you run into all of the feuds between different, uh, in and out groups and the, uh, it's easier to post a negative comment than a positive con- comment, and it's uh, there are trolls out there whose job it is to make the world worse for everybody. But uh, it's at events like this that you are once again confronted with the love of gaming, and that was certainly highly in evidence at uh, Gen Con this year, as it certainly is uh, every year. And uh, so, Ken, uh, this brings us to our sarcastic thing we always say, which or, is... Or a thing we always say sarcastically, at least. Yeah. Which is, well, Robin, after four days of being besieged by uh, crowds of young, excited role players, um, the only conclusion we can possibly draw is the industry is dying. Yes, the industry is once again dying as we continue to bring people in from every demographic. Uh, we have our legacy grognards next to uh, families, next to uh, groups of teenagers and, uh, the and the people who are introducing us to our kids, their kids, I think they've been swapped out for older kids. <laughs> yes. Uh, some of the, <laughs> some of the people I used to see, uh, uh, pushed around in strollers at my first gen cons are now, uh, st- strapping young, uh, handsome, uh, men and women. And, uh, uh, that's intensely disturbing to me, but, uh, good for the hobby because it suggests that, you know, gamers stay in the family. You know? Oh, did did, uh, did you want to tell the, the 13th Age Paladin story? I don't think I know the 13th Age Paladin there, there story. There was a family, and I, I forget if I heard this from Rob or from another one of our 13th Age GMs, but they said that they were running a 13th Age event, and the, the group that sat down was the mom, the dad, and the daughter. And they were like, well, this will be fun and interesting and weird. And so they they start setting up, and they start playing, and... Everyone is into it. Everyone is totally into, into the game. They've got their, they know 13th age. Apparently they're familiar with it. And at one point during the game, the mom asks, does my paladin have to be good? And the daughter says, <laughs> it's all coming back to me now. This yes, story. And the daughter says, of course, mom, <laughs> God. <laughs> and so the notion of a 13 year old being embarrassed that their parent is role playing wrong yes. may be my favorite, my favorite Gen Con family moment. I can't uh, certainly. even, can't even, I can't even, I can't even deal with your alignment right now. It's just, <laughs> that was, that was a, that was a great story. And then that sort of, you know, uh, we obviously need to uh, proselytize as well as breed as uh, gamers. Um, and I'm more than most because, uh, my breeding is, uh, been constrained by age and disinterest, but yes, our, I, I think our, our, that our children are, are creative in both cases. So exactly. Uh, our beautiful, creative children. How creepy. Um, but, 
<laughs> but uh, but it is great to see families gaming together, and it's even greater to see people who were not gaming uh, in nineteen, who are not genetically linked to people around Gary's table, coming out to um uh, to Gen Con in ever more increasing numbers, and uh, all the various types of people who decide that uh dice and uh and little maps and uh funny voices is way more fun than the actual state of the world in 2016. So I encourage all those people to uh keep on keeping on and for those of you who are raising up your children in the way they should go, uh yes, your paladin does have to be good. Mom. Mom. <laughs> uh so I think this is the part of the Gen Con episode where we both say that we're too busy to find out what's new and cool this year. It certainly is for me, or I'm choosing to be busy because my thought <laughs> is either if I'm not on a panel, uh, I should be at the booth ready to sign people's uh, books for them. Uh, the uh, Our Pelgrane fans are my first responsibility. Or if you're coming to the booth with Hamlet's Hit Points or Feng Shui too, of course, you too are my first responsibility. Right. But uh, my I want to be there to talk to uh, our uh, people. So, Ken, did you, and you had even more seminars than I did. You had, you had yeah. seminars up the wazoo. I did. I had tons of seminars How up many? the wazoo. Um, I don't, I don't want to, can you quantify wazoo for, for like, our can, can we can give a, a brief wazoo quantification? I had 11. A, a wazoo is apparently 11 se- seminars wide or long or whatever dimension of wazoo. And we are now talking about wazoos more than we should either. Uh, um, well, the, 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 I think the number 11 is, is significant in, in a bunch of ways recently. Yeah. I can think of <laughs> one of them in Stranger Things and one of them we'll talk about shortly. Uh, yes. So, uh, did you find any new hotness? Uh, no, because it turns out that none of the panels that I was on were about the new hotness. They were all about, uh, various other things. I did, uh, when I was exploring the, the few reaches of the game that I did explore, I sensed, because I couldn't buy one, that the, uh, pandemic reign of Cthulhu is the new hotness, because it, it sold out super fast. Um, Asmodee, I'm sure, has all the new hotness because there were lines around them. Uh, cool Mini or Not at one point blocked the area near our booth, so I knew they had something hot. <laughs> but what it was, you couldn't have told me, and I didn't ask. Yes, we, we now judge the hotness by congestion in the, uh, in the now yes. otherwise uncongested hallways. I do know that uh, I was. it was reported to me not just by uh, gracious fans, but also by irritated staff members that Bubble Gumshoe was really selling off the walls at IPR. And I saw from my very own eyes that uh, Emily Kerboss's collection of her old hotness into a new, new hotness, uh, the Romance Trilogy, uh, blew off the shelves by Saturday because Emily um, has not really internalized how great she is and how vital her games are and how much everyone wants to play them. Um, but also at the IGDN, uh, Urban Shadows was uh, falling off the shelves as though pushed and uh, Headspace by Mark Richardson was also doing super well. I don't know if it was the new hotness, but it was certainly pretty hot and people were talking about it. And our old buddy, John Wick, of course, had his brand new seventh C uh, in a pile at the very back of the hall, but it's very backness did not prevent uh, the people there uh, from ha- being far too busy to talk to me. So obviously they, they must've been having a hot time down at uh, uh, Thea and uh, Enverin's. Now, uh, speaking of new hotness, we had the Palgrain press, uh, State of the Pelgrane panel that we all took part in, and there was, uh, uh, I recorded that, haven't checked the audio yet, but uh, assuming that it is intelligible, which is not always a dead cert in the Crown Plaza seminar rooms, because they have an air conditioner that sounds 
perfectly normal while you're in the room, but on recording, it sounds like uh, eerie raudive voices sometimes from the utter dark. So it could be clean audio or it could be, we're going to eat you. So uh, assuming A, we'll find a way to get the, the panel out to you. Uh, but uh, people have been asking me for uh, more detail on one of the uh, our big future announcement, and that is that my big new mega project for Palgrain, which I'm going to start writing in the fall, is the Yellow King role-playing game. Uh, what this is going to be is uh, a new core book, so it's not going to be part of the Trail of Cthulhu line. It's going to be its own thing, meaning that uh, if you want to put Cthulhu in your Robert Chambers, you you know how to do that. You can uh, port over the monster stats from uh, Trail of Cthulhu and other supplements, but that's not the focus of this. It's about uh, the Chambers mythos and particularly on my spin on Chambers from my short story collection, New Tales of the Yellow Sign. So this will be, uh, a chunk of it will be set in the 1890s. Uh, a chunk of it will be set in the alternate history established by the 1920s New York that appears in the story Repair Rep Reputations. And there are other periods and sort of fragmented realities that are uh, that you sort of play across in the game as you adopt uh, characters who reflect your previous characters but are not necessarily those exact characters that you're different sort of iterations of your essential selves through time and space and alternate realities and so this will be published as a uh, series of books that all go together into a gorgeous slipcase and each of those will have their own separate graphic design and look reflecting the era and or alternate reality that it is set in. So this will be really exciting. We're looking to kickstart uh, probably in the spring of uh, 17, and you will certainly hear a lot more about it on this podcast, but that is the uh, capsule tease of what it is that we're working on. Yeah, the also the other announcement, I guess, at the time, which I don't know if it's a new announcement. I knew about it, but maybe everyone else didn't. Uh, the Hideous Creatures series from Ken Writes About Stuff will be assembled and improved and expanded upon in a Trail of Cthulhu bestiary, which will be called, cleverly enough, Hideous Creatures. And that will uh, be my next thing after the fall of Delta Green, which is my current thing. And uh, the panel on, on that was pretty much, uh, I think, left off for the good people at Delta Green, who were nice enough to have me on two of their panels, it, which is where I plugged Fall of Delta Green a couple of times. Right, and uh, we may extract a little bit of audio from that that's sort of more original, or we may find another place to uh, release the whole thing as one deal. Uh, I also recorded a bunch of the panels that I participated in. Uh, we had the investigative role-playing masterclass. That's, I think, the third year we've done that. The first year we did it, we had about six people attending, uh, one of whom sitting in the front row with a notebook was uh, a mysterious being named Ruth Tillman, who we didn't necessarily know yet. And uh, last year it was uh, big, and this year we were in a much bigger room, and it was even bigger. And uh, also gratifyingly, uh, it was a really large crowd, and differently than previous years, almost every there, everybody there knew Gumshoe, which can leads me to a weird, crazy theory that might be borne out also later in the podcast. This is kind of weird. I think people are playing our games. Hmm. We may need a little more evidence for that, but we'll, we'll see. perhaps some we'll will see. come along. Perhaps some will come along. Uh, did a dramatic interaction uh, masterclass, and uh, this time I contrived to have Emily Kerbas 
on the panel, as well as uh, illustrator extraordinaire uh, Rachel Kahn. And uh, I know, because she's in my uh, gaming group here in Toronto, that uh, Rachel is an absolute master of drama system and dramatic scenes. And I know, because I'm a sapient being, that uh, Emily would also step up to the plate. And uh, so, in addition to fielding questions about uh, having drama and uh, personal interaction in your role-playing games, I had them do a scene together. And it is a uh, was a real delight. And let's keep our fingers crossed that the audio for that uh, survived. We may release that one just on its own as a special bonus episode because you sort of need the continuity of their uh, opening scene and then the way they close it at the end. Maybe we'll release it on the Patreon page first. Oh, that might be a thing. Yeah. We never give any kind of bonus exclusive content to our Patreon backers because they love us only for ourselves. Right. But maybe if we toss them a little lanyap, that would make them happy. I mean, they would get early access, but yeah, yeah, that obviously we can't we can't withhold Emily and Rachel from the masses. No, that's not our role right. in this. Our role is to transmit and and share the the glory that is Emily and Rachel. But our special people get to experience those special people first. If again, it doesn't sound like there's demons on the track, or also, <laughs> yeah. uh, actually, also in the problem with the the crown is that there's usually a little divider and almost inevitably an event right next to you where everybody's shouting at the top of their lungs. So right, that yeah, might, they're that having might some be the annoying thing that ruins it. Holler the name of our game endlessly panel, which, uh, well, who doesn't love that panel? Some people mistake uh, volume for excitement. That's all I got to say. Yep. That's all they do. Then when, when in truth, in truth, the most excitement comes from two people who have been battered by sleep deprivation and bourbon, trying desperately to hack a podcast together. <laughs> That's the most excitement exactly. right there. And, uh, and we, of course, we did our uh, live uh, from Gen Con uh, segment, and that was in the Westin, has a much better chance of having decent audio, and that'll come out to uh, cover my time at the film festival. So that'll be right. uh, one of our episodes in early September. Uh, Ken, is there anything else you want to note about any of your panels before we move on to the next topic? Well, I already praised uh, Alex Roberts, who is my uh, cohort on the podcasting panel at the top of the show. Uh, I did a world building panel and Agit George um, sort of uh, as uh, it interestingly cho chose to moderate the panel instead of actually uh, uh, really bring uh, the full force of his knowledge and personality into it, which is great because it meant the panel was moderated. But it meant that people who wanted to see Agit talk about um, uh, world building uh, for less traditional players may have uh, been shortchanged. So you should hunt out Agit and find him uh, online and pester him to tell you in person. But we, it was a good panel. We need to sit down with him and give him a few lessons in arrogance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't think he's quite full of himself enough. Um, and then I did a panel with Matt Forbeck on research. And since Matt's research is Ask Ken... And <laughs> 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 it, it took on a circular quality. It had a it. Well, it was it was a proper. There was a proper degree of um uh, of of mutual praise on that panel. I like that. Uh, the theme and mechanics panel. I began by blaggarding um uh, Reiner Knizia's terrible, awful Beowulf game. So that uh, meant that uh, theme and mechanics have been well covered. And Lisa Teague. I want to call. There was a lot of great people on that panel, but Lisa Teague is one of those people who, if she was on literally every panel at Gen Con, she could bring knowledge about what the panel is about. She has worked in every level of the gaming industry. She's done everything from game design to packaging design to selling and marketing to gamers to, you know, it would not be surprising to me if she has, you know, built a game store uh, from gravel and and spit out out in some uh, some suburb somewhere uh, that, that she is. She knows every aspect of game of game design and game production. 
And so to have her on the theme and mechanics panel was really terrific. We also had Harrison Pink, who does um, mostly video games and was talking about theme and mechanics in, in uh, computer game design, which was really super interesting. And I know we had someone else on that panel, but um, I, I hope that they don't feel bad that they were not Elisa or Harrison. Um, uh, and then, two, like I said, two Delta Green panels. And then I did a solo panel on Cthulhu in gaming, which I think went pretty well. We had a really good discussion uh, from the audience about um, uh, representing madness in Cthulhu gaming. And was it cool and fun or was it uh, mean and awful? And I think we had a lot of uh, really good discussion come out of that topic. And maybe that can be something that you and I put into the podcast because I think people wanted to know about that one. Is there audio? No, of course so, there's not so audio. you're saying we will talk about this. Exactly. Yes. We yes. will pretend to, to be uh, us. Okay. And, it's and going we'll to be a burning issue. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to put that on the docket. Uh, right. Well, speaking of dockets, after this commercial, we're going to take one of the segments that I'm sure you're uh, used to in the Gen Con show in which we uh, devote uh, a distanced analytical approach to who won the Ennies and what it tells us about the uh, industry. So uh, here's our final commercial of the episode, and then we will stroke our chins dispassionately. When you signed up to risk life and limb to protect the global order, you didn't know you'd be going up against the cultists, conspirators, creatures, and inexpressible horrors of the Cthulhu mythos. But that's exactly what happens when you join Delta Green, the most covert of covert security agencies. Fortunately, you now have the Delta Green Agent's Handbook to somewhat lengthen your career as a field operative. This player's-only rulebook for Delta Green the role-playing game tells you everything you need to know about character creation, investigation, combat, sanity, gear, agents that will help and hinder your progress. And scenes of the home front that show you what you're fighting for. And dying for. And maybe occasionally horribly resurrected for. Grab the Delta Green Agent's Handbook from Arc Dream Publishing in oh-so-secure PDF format at RPG Now. So, Ken, what happened at the Ennies? Um, well, Robin, uh, I believe that you won best rules gold for Feng Shui 2. Did you win anything else for Feng Shui 2? I was a little busy and distracted. It also took home the gold for best setting and the uh, silver for best game. And as I said in my uh, acceptance speech, uh, as I've learned from you, my partner in crime, that the best any to win is the silver any. Unless, of course, you win gold, in which case gold is the best one to win. So I won a Ken gold for uh, Feng Shui 2 for best game. And oh, uh, there you go. And Ken, what kind of gold did we win for this podcast? For this podcast, we won the best of all gold because it's a gold that Ken and Robin both win. And we won it. Uh, it's three-peat gold, so it's triply three best gold. gold. Yes. Three-peat gold. And straight up gold. We are now Michael Jordan gold. Yes. That's how gold we so, are. So thank you very much to our listeners for uh, voting for us uh, in this podcast. We couldn't do it without you, just like we nope. couldn't uh, continue doing the show without our Patreon backers. And it is uh, very uh, humbling. And as you can tell, uh, if you'd seen the award, you would have seen how humble we were as we showed right. it. Yes. 3P! 3P! <laughs> uh, so we'd like to thank you. The 3P, of course, uh, really belongs not just to Ken and I, but to you, the listener. 
That's right. And, um, uh, believe me, if you, uh, if you, if you don't think that, uh, we were, we were humble there, well, it's as though you are a constant listener of Ken and Robin talk about stuff, for which we also thank you. And speaking of humility, oh, yes. how, how did, how did other Pelgrane and or Dracula dossier items do? Well, I should mention that uh, I think we have moved through the Olympics long enough that Pelgrane no longer outweighs the top three medalists by weight of metal. But, uh, currently, if Pelgrane were a country, it would be beating China. Let's just put it that way. Um, Pelgrane was, as we all know, nominated for 10 Any Awards, Robin, which means, of course, that, uh, you know, uh, natural shifts, other games do exist. They have their own fans. That means we only won 11 Ennies this year. So, uh, best of luck to Pelgrane. Try and beat it next year. Um, yeah. I'm sure they can, but they will not have the Dracula dossier. Uh, to kick around because Dracula dossier has already won gold for best writing, silver for best adventure and gold for a little category we like to call product of the year. So if you're asking what was the product of 2015, I wonder it was Dracula dossier director's handbook. And thank you very much. And indeed, thank you very much uh, for those of you who did vote for it. And that uh, really meant a lot. Not just to me. You, you could be forgiven for thinking Ken needs no more praise and ego boosting, but it meant a lot to Kat Tobin, who was the person who did all the unpleasant part of Dracula dossier, and to Gareth Hanrahan, who was the person who seamlessly and inventively and beautifully added uh, 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 walls and carpets and furniture and electricity and plumbing and a roof and everything else to the stark and bare beautiful uh, blueprint that I had laid out low these many years ago. And so Gareth is absolutely and a thousand percent, uh, my co-winner for that gold for best writing and, uh, a, a triple co-winner of, uh, the, uh, gold for product of the year without Gareth and without cat, uh, the pro the product could not have existed and they deserve every degree of ego and, um, uh, and fawning that they should receive. So go fawn over them. I encourage that. Uh, also, of course, our co-writers, uh, um, uh, uh, the other authors that came in after the Kickstarter started, they were all, um, uh, they all produced like champions and have been rewarded thusly as champions do. And, uh, the, uh, production, uh, team, Chris Huth doing the layout, Simon doing the maps, all, everyone else who produced and, and contributed to the game, uh, you get your share of reflected gold. Dennis Detwiller, who did the cover, he wants to, uh, to have the, the, the molecules from the front of the metal shaved off and sent to him because they would be the cover of the metal. So obviously, um, Dennis, uh, talk to me after the show. I, I think you'd probably send him pretty well any old mo molecules. He would know the difference. Um, Dennis knows his molecules. You just you think just because he's good looking that he's got to be stupid, but it's not true. Dennis is super sharp. Right. And if you weren't tired of seeing uh, Simon and Kat uh, look shocked and overwhelmed, uh, Pelgrain won silver for fan favorite publisher, which is the award, which of course is not nominated, but they nonetheless won an award for. And of course, that award uh, usually goes to the top two biggest companies, uh, yet uh, the glorious any voters chose to support Pelgrane Press. So uh, that was very exciting and very gratifying. And uh, uh, this was actually the 10th anniversary of Gumshoe. Ten years ago, Simon and I sat at a little table without a drop cloth on it at, uh, at Gen Con with just a stack of copies of the Esoterrorist and a few other Dying Earth products off to the side and sat there forlornly uh, next to the door to the men's room 
uh, trying to catch people's eye and get them to come over and ask. And uh, uh, we bonded a lot during that period. Uh, but, uh, you know, Gumshoe did not take off immediately. There was some resistance to it. And it finally, you know, started to take hold in people's minds. And now it seems like it's uh, getting to be more and more of a thing. So I could not be more gratified by that either. So it, uh, it really was uh, emotionally overwhelming, uh, I think, for both of us. Yes. And, and certainly yes, for the so. rest of our Pelgrane crew. And uh, we can only uh, very, very sincerely thank all of the people who uh, supported us and who support us by playing our games. So uh, that's the serious bit. Let's go back to being arrogant and, and, uh, and sarcastic. And harsh. Ken. Exactly. Um, uh, other things Pelgrane won, speaking of arrogance, uh, include the, uh, well, technically this is the good people at All Rolled Up that won it, but they run the best eight accessory uh, gold for uh, Dracula Dossier Black Archive, the All Rolled Up uh, dice bag and kit, uh, which is a super great thing, and it won gold. And they won that uh, for their Dracula dossier version of it, the Black Archive, which is terrific. And Pelgrane then was perforce forced to take the silver for best aid and accessory for the 13th Age Game Master's screen and resource book. So there you go. That was us also. What else did we win? We won um, uh, best website silver, right, for CPageXX. So you and I get our share of that love. Oh, right. There's, there's some molecules there for us, too. Exactly. Some atoms and, and digits. Some pixels. We right. have many pixels for I, I'm us. I'm told I'm the most prolific uh, contributor to PageXX, so I, I guess I get more molecules of that than anyone. And you're the tipping of it, too, right? Does, doesn't it come from a title of your yeah. initial little column there well, on the I website? I up the name, which finally, after many years of being nominated, it's stuck enough in people's heads that... Uh, that, that it's paid off. Yeah. And then Paul Grain won the silver for Trail of Cthulhu the Long Con for Best Electronic Book, which remains a dumb category. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of dumb categories... Uh, the dumbest of all is uh, my gold, which I won for best RPG related product for Ken writes about stuff. Volume three last year, uh, I won the silver for Ken writes about stuff. Volume two in best electronic product. And at my acceptance award uh, speech, I said, this is a stupid category. You might as well give it to something best serif font use or be best game using a serif font. And, um, uh, because electronic and physical are, are, they're the same product, right? It doesn't matter how you play it. Well, it's especially so the, weird when a product wins as best electronic product when it exists in print form, and then its print version doesn't win anything. That is yes. peculiar. That is weird. But anyway, the larger point being that uh, to punish me for my hubris, the uh, judges of the Any Awards then said, all right, smart guy, we'll nominate you for best RPG-related product. So they looked at Ken Wright's about stuff, and they said, well, it's not gaming, but we suppose it's related to gaming. <laughs> So go off and, 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 and stew in your own juice. And I stewed so well and so juicily that, uh, the any voters gave me the gold for Ken writes about stuff volume three, which I'm also very gratified for. But what that meant was that I beat Paizo, which I'm super happy with. Because <laughs> so I beat... you can overcome the shame of it being a nonsense category. Because exactly. You, because you with won the Paizo. victory of having beaten Paizo. And the best thing is that the category it should have been in best supplement. Pilgrane won Golden for the Dracula Dossier Hawkins papers, which is more technically a related product because it's a bunch of handouts. So therefore, <laughs> we won gold in the correct category. We just had the wrong product in each one. But we, but fortunately, we won all the golds that we needed to win. So it worked out. Nobody was cheated. But I do want to uh, single out Dean Englehart's work on uh, the Hawkins papers because, oh my God, 
they are so gorgeous and so beautiful. And his role in the Hawkins papers was was to design them. Uh, I wrote uh, uh, some of them. Visual design. Yeah, visually designed. Um, I wrote some of them. The the newspapers in um uh, in the Balkans wrote some of them. Gareth wrote the vast majority of them. He wrote like eighty five percent of them, and then we sent them off. To Dean with notes saying, Hey, make these look cool and periody. And instead of that, Dean made them look like we are going to be arrested because they look like forged government documents. And it's insane how good they are. It's just the staggering level of, of, of genius and beauty that Dean put into that, uh, that supplement. And you can buy it in PDF now. Uh, and if you didn't back at physical level, uh, too bad because, uh, Cat will never, ever, ever let us do a physical product of that again. Uh, they're, there's like 40,000 individual pieces of paper that all have to be dipped in tea to be aged. And she is not looking forward to that one tiny bit. So, um, uh, she is, <laughs> uh, so the, the Hawkins papers are an electronic product. Maybe and, people uh, threw enough money at, uh, at cat that she would just allow a regular printed version of the PDF. To you, be you, you should, you should consult cat, uh, for the size of that number. And it's not a small number. I promise you. But yes, they promised to do an, an, uh, an astounding amount of handwork. For the oh. ones that the Kickstarter uh, backers get, so. it's nonsensical how well uh, that it, it, that's just insane. I may not get a copy. That's how uh, little Cat wants to do these. So um, I'm I'm very happy though that we won the gold for it. And Dean's work is just tremendous and deserves it. Uh, what else is, is there? Anything else that Pelgrane won? I I feel like I may have left one out, but I I, I think it's uh, it's time to move on. Nonetheless. Next year, when somebody else wins all the awards, we will be able to tell you what that means about the industry. Right. Uh, but this time, we're just grateful. I, I guess the other people that won, though, um, besides Feng Shui 2, uh, are uh, the ones that I noticed winning more than one thing were Strahd, uh, the, the, the Curse of Strahd. Uh, that came out from Wizards, and that won a couple of things. It beat us for adventure and lost to us for product of the year. So that makes me happy. Or it makes me half happy. Um, and uh, Maze of the Blue Medusa came out from Seder Press uh, by Zach uh, Smith and um, uh, Patrick Stewart. And it is an old school dungeon done by people who understand user interface and have a Whitney Biennial exhibited artist doing the art. So well done to you, Seder Press. Um, the, and again, it's a, it's a gorgeous physical artifact. Uh, it was not out in physical form in time for the Ennies, which is why it must Set, be satisfied with winning the gold for best electronic book. But it is an amazing uh, thing if you're a tabletop D&D type player uh, to have that out there in the universe. Delta Green, of course, which I'm also tangentially associated with, won uh, best supplement silver for the Agent's Handbook, which is, of course, this being the enemies, a complete role-playing game in and of itself. So well done, uh, category people. And uh, we'll see you again next year when we can uh, perhaps opine about what this means to the industry, or perhaps we'll just be bragging about all the gold's time watch one. Who can say? Who can say? Um, so uh, I guess we need to look elsewhere for our industry news and trends. I guess the uh, biggest uh, bit of news I heard is that uh, there's going to be a big shakeup in the tabletop role-playing distribution uh, side of things, that it looks like there's a big opportunity opening up if someone uh, wants to uh, be a big, new, efficient, uh, fabulous distributor. There's going to be a lot of Pretty big mid-tier companies looking for a new distributor because uh, it's PSI has is getting out of the uh, tabletop role-playing uh, category. So they were sort of half distributor, half fulfillment house, right? I guess. I mean, as far as I could tell, they never did anything. So the fact that they're getting out of the category is, you know, it, it, it's like you know, um, uh, oh no, the Easter Bunny is dead. 
Well, that's too bad, but whatever. Well, th- that's why I'm casting this as an opportunity exactly. for someone else to come along and, uh, and, and do the thing. Yes. But yeah, a, a number of companies were fired as clients by uh, PSI. Or freed, um, uh, perhaps and, freed. <laughs> freed from the shackles of PSI and uh, can move out. And uh, are, I guess they are going to move out. And it'll be very interesting, I think, to see what um, among them Green Ronin and Money Cook Games do. Because those are a couple of smart industry bellwether leaders. And if you want to know what you should do, I suggest looking at what they do. And if they do the same thing, then do that thing. Uh, did you find any other scuttlebutt? Uh, there was a lot of, you know, what else will Asmodee do uh, now that it has dominated the tabletop game, uh, board game space so thoroughly. Um, I didn't hear any concrete rumors about anyone being next on the uh, gulping block, but it would not amaze me if Asmodee is not uh, wanting to complete the multifecta. I, I, let's see, did I hear anything else specific and, and interesting about the industry? I'm not coming up with anything that fits Category 2, certainly. Robin, did you come across any other right. trails? Um, so, uh, I think one of the, the coolest things, uh, I guess the trend that became suddenly evident to me is the phenomenon of uh, role-playing games as a spectator event. Uh, the uh, This is uh, suddenly a thing, and uh, we'll talk about it more uh, both on the live show, and I'm sure we'll have to uh, find... Uh, an entire uh, segment uh, to talk about it once we figure it out. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, once, once we barely know once anything we answer, about it. Uh, answer the question, people want to do this? Really? Okay. Let's um, find out find This out doesn't why. sound likely. But it's, you know, just as uh, it sort of reminds me of, you know, years ago where the first people came around and we have this thing called podcasting. We think it might be thing. Would you like to participate in podcasting? And we're like, get away, kid. You bother me. <laughs> yes. Dead print is where it's at, lad. Yeah. Who's going <laughs> to devote the passion and energy and time to, for example, a podcast that comes out every week and, and, and really loves you. And, and provides you with uh, salient informational details about every possible aspect of gaming. Another trend that continued uh, along was... Uh, the evidence that role-playing is growing not just in our home markets, but also around the world. And so I got to learn about the Chinese uh, role-playing game scene, uh, particularly through uh, there's now a Chinese edition of Trail of Cthulhu. So uh, that, that brings my translate languages I've been translated count up to 10, which is pretty cool. The company is named uh, Labyrinth. I got to talk to Hao Zhang, who translated it and, and who runs that company, and to hear about the scene in, uh, mostly it's in Beijing and Sh- Shanghai. I also got to talk to a gentleman named Jason Sheets, who runs CanCon, and that is not CanCon as in uh, Anne Murray and uh, Gordon Lightfoot, but rather uh, Can is in the uh, leader of a uh, barbarian horde who then moves in and becomes Emperor of China. Now, did Jason uh, pronounce it CanCon, or did he pronounce it ConCon? Um, I, I don't remember a, uh, a particular inflection, but I'm sure he'll uh, uh, in, inform us how to uh, how to blurt that out. But anyway, um, and there's a big... Because as we all know from William Shatner, Con is pronounced with the uh, short vowel, not the long vowel, even if you pronounce it for a very long time. <laughs> well, there we go. So, at any rate, gaming arrived there around 2001, 
there's still a big uh, Pathfinder community there, or that's I think kind of the dominant. <laughs> you game. say still, still, <laughs> as though as though that was like the 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 the, the precursor, of the lungfish that will be swept away. There's still a big path. There's still a big Pathfinder community everywhere, Robin. It's yeah. the second biggest role playing game in the world. Uh, th- yeah, so that was not my uh, attempt to uh, to denigrate uh, Pathfinder in, in any way, but the the scene is uh, is kind of taking off and starting to uh, to grow there and. Uh, how Zhang is uh, kind of bringing uh, his favorite, more story-oriented games into that uh, scene. So it's an interesting case of the evolution from uh, crunchy and then the big sort of efflorescence out into all the different uh, flavors of, uh, of gaming. And uh, it from uh, what he was saying and what uh, members of that community are interested in and not interested in, and uh, it sounds like uh, gamers are the same pretty much everywhere. Well, that is certainly uh, a hopeful and positive takeaway. Um, I did uh, hear a little bit about uh, gaming and game culture overseas in foreign parts uh, from uh, Aja George, who would, of course, object to me con- <laughs> characterizing it both ways. But uh, he was talking at the world building panel about doing gaming for uh, people who are from uh, the, the slum areas of, of some of the of, of cities in India or who are from rural villages in India and running role-playing games for them and the kinds of gaming that they do. And he pointed out, um, perhaps um, uh, with some legitimate asperity, that there are 1.4 billion people in India, all of whom uh, are learning English in school and speak it probably at home better than many other people who I've gamed with. And so uh, maybe it is about time that someone start looking at the Indian market instead of the Chinese market. And so I would encourage everyone to start thinking, gosh, maybe a guy in India would like my game. And then what does that mean? Or better yet, a lady in India might like my game. And what does that mean? Yeah. Um, so it's something I've started doing, uh, not with a marketing plan in mind, but just uh, just to reflect the different list of nationalities on people who follow me on Twitter and Facebook and make sure mm-hmm. that there are uh, names, uh, you know, in examples when you're using player names, you know, at, at least a first step is indeed to use some Indian names and some Chinese right. names and... Yep. Turkish names because we know Chad and Josh have been in examples so long they're very tired of it. Yeah, let's let's let other people come in and be examples of play. Yeah, let's let uh, Dev and Zhang join the group, right? Exactly. Uh, so uh, I guess what people have really been waiting for though is for us to talk about food uh, in Indianapolis. We're primarily known as a food podcast, well, I believe. Weirdly, <laughs> that was the that was like the. I heard some lovely things about the podcast, and we'll get to that again later. But uh, in terms of requests for more of a particular segment, first of all, we got more uh, requests for more politics hut, and, uh, and <laughs> that's that, that's in the spirit of poking the bear and uh, watching the car crash simultaneously. Yeah. I think, and and those always go the same way. Is that uh, it's like we'd like more politics hut, we'd like maybe talk about it, and then at the end, it's either I'm more with you than with Ken, or I'm more with on Ken's side. So you. So uh, we're able to appeal to a get you a podcast that can do both. Yes. So <laughs> I'm always a little uh, reluctant to do politics because I do know it, it it angries the blood. But the, the people have spoken. But what the people are speaking even harder and more frequently is more food hut. Yes. And, and one of the reasons I, I haven't even done when many, politics is good, food is better than politics. Yes, that's that's a truism. Uh, I guess I've been uh, not putting those on the docket quite as much because I have not been exploring any new foods myself uh, that I've been a little distracted by the thing, so I'm relying on old staples. So now, not only do I feel that I'm not varying my, uh, I'm not cooking enough for, well, I'm still cooking for Valerie, but not cooking differently for Valerie, but now I feel like I'm not cooking enough for you, the listener. So uh, maybe when uh, grilling season ends, I can uh, 
start throwing some new things. Once we in get life. into um, uh, pot fo and pot roast season, we can start talking about that stuff. Exactly. Anyway, so, but in Indianapolis, there is, because it is an American city of uh, 800,000 or whatever, there are at least 10 good restaurants. And Robin and I are going to find them all at some point before Gen Con moves to Chicago. Well, one of the tricks, it turns out, is to go to Indianapolis early uh, and not stay downtown and therefore be close to restaurants other than those within an immediate 10-minute walk of the convention center. So we went to Speedway, Indiana, which is the uh, townlet that has sprung up around the racetrack, and it looked like there were a bunch of uh, different restaurants there that might be uh, if we do this again, Ken, we might want to explore something else on that strip. In exactly. Speedway, Indiana. I, I think that Speedway shows promise. There, there was a wine locker, uh, an, an, a particular famous athlete who had uh, one called the Wine Locker. Do you remember that one? No, it was A.J. Foyt's Wine Locker. A.J. Foyt's Wine Locker. Championship you, driver, an indie driver that I grew up idolizing. Mostly, I think, because it was fun to say A.J. Foyt. But I mean, him and Mario Andretti, like really old school auto racing. And you turn a corner and you see something labeled A.J. Foyt's Wine Locker. That that makes your whole week, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. We might have to go and check out A.J. Foyt's Wine That was the gold any of restaurant spotting, as far as I'm concerned. But the one we went to, uh, my perpetual quest when I go to American uh, cities in the barbecue zone, is to enjoy and uh, so check out some barbecue. Uh, Toronto finally does have good barbecue. But uh, we went to Bourbon and Barbecue, which has a sort of a, a casual neighborhood uh munchy joint slash uh, uh, bar vibe to it, but had quite good barbecue. Uh, it's not necessarily your favorite uh, indie barbecue restaurant, but no. it was pretty good. Squealers is still my favorite Indianapolis barbecue restaurant, but it, it was good barbecue. Yep. And the potato salad, uh, you know, some would argue that the secret of a great barbecue meal is lies in the sides. And, uh, and oh my God, the beans. The beans were better even than the, than the potato salad, I think, because they were made with lard and love. <laughs> The uh, And, of course, when you go to a barbecue place, you should always look on the list of sides for the atypical thing, the thing that is special to them. And they had grilled cabbage. They had uh, sort of caramelized cabbage, and that was also really fabulous. And yes, cool... because they were from an old uh, Amish family. Yes. So it was all Amish family recipes. Right. So just like the Salt Lake in Texas has sort of an Asian-American uh, flavor sneaking in around the edges because of the history of uh, that family, uh, here we had uh, the same thing, but with the Amish instead. Amish so. home cooking yeah. and barbecue. And, and the, bourbon. Yes, they had a really amazing <laughs> bourbon list. They had a good, deep bourbon list. Um, very, I mean, for a, for a joint of that nature, that was a really good bourbon list. For example, they had larceny. So that's nice. Right. Well, if you're going to call your place bourbon and barbecue, you better you do need to step up. And they did. Yes. Uh, so if you're, in, if you're in Speedway, Indiana, bourbon and barbecue. <laughs> bourbon and barbecue. But that was not the best uh, restaurant, uh, certainly not even the best restaurant outside the downtown core that we ate at on that trip because we went to the major restaurant, uh, which was also out, out on the west side near the airport and is in proudly proclaims itself Ethiopian and Eritrean food on the sign. Uh, though I suspect that it was Eritrean, not primarily Ethiopian. Robin, what is your takeaway from major restaurant? I loved it. I thought it was really delicious. Uh, I'm lucky enough to live in a neighborhood with a lot of Ethiopian restaurants and this was as good as any of them and yes. was in Indianapolis with yes, none is, of the, 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 the fine... degree of difficulty means it gets the medal. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really good in, uh, Ethiopian restaurants on the North side of Chicago, uh, which means they are a fairly lengthy L right away. But this one, 
uh, could could stand with the best Chicago Ethiopian that I've had. It was right up in that same range, and the um, uh, the Kitfo was just phenomenally good, just amazingly terrific. I always wonder why I'm not just eating a bowl of raw meat whenever I go to a, an Armenian place and get kibbeh, and I, or I go to a, an Ethiopian place and get kitfo because it's so terrific when the meat is good and the spicing and the oil is good. It's just insanely great, and uh, the the kitfo that, and they had the tej, the delicious honey wine, which everyone loves. But they did the coffee ceremony for us at the end, where they take the coffee beans out and they show them to you while they're roasting. And you our, have our server was a smell. real saint because oh, that was yeah, late. She in was the so evening. great. You're it was supposed so late. to order that. In advance and more. And, and we were loud and, and stupid because we were a game company. And we asked, asked at the end, and not only did they do it for us, but they, they comped us. So, yeah. Uh, so That's by all amazing. means, people, go to the major restaurant and reward them yeah. for their uh, awesome And if you live in Indianapolis, for God's sake, um, uh, you know, just move. Move <laughs> to that neighborhood and, and go there. Or, or take a car. I've, I've heard there are yeah, cars there. All right. Fine. Whatever. Do what you must. But uh, if I come back and I find you guys have not been eating at the major restaurant, because we're going to ask and, the, and they'll know, um, we're going to have harsh words for you. And finally, I would like to revise uh, my opinion of the Mikado, which is the uh, sushi place downtown. I, I have downgraded it too much because it basically uh, gives you a quality that's kind of equal to a budget place, Japanese place at a non-budget price. But I've realized, hey... It's in Indianapolis when you need a sushi restaurant to be in Indianapolis. And so you're just paying the premium. You got to forget the diff price differential. And the food itself is perfectly fine. Nothing wrong with it. And uh, I was using a wrong comparative measure. The Mikado is actually, uh, of the available choices downtown restaurant wise, uh, pretty good. So I'm going to knock it up a uh, notch on my rating system. Although that said, we did find out that the Ocean Air will serve their ahi tuna to you sashimi style they won't even bother to grill it if that's what you want so you know think about that think about that the ocean air is pricey because it's a real grown-up people restaurant but on the other hand you'll get a um uh, a, a block of sashimi grade ahi tuna the size of a baby's head right. if you want that. and we haven't actually talked about the ocean air before on the show because, because we don't want other people to come we and were afraid it. that other people would come and take our spots but for uh reasons unrelated to the quality of their uh, fish or the quality of the dining experience or the quality of the of the wait staff yes they're the all fine people fabulous uh, they even make choose your own adventure jokes yeah. as you yep. uh, as they serve you uh however uh cat is vegetarian and uh their vegetarian options are not what they're about so we're going to have to uh, continue on and find uh possibly another place to have celebratory dinner so we can now tell you that the ocean air is a really great restaurant yes uh, it's not it's expensive it's high-end um, also, uh, the chocolate mousse is pretty amazing. It comes in a yep. gigantic it's a Valrona chocolate mousse. Valrona chocolate mousse comes in a gigantic parfait glass, and they will say something foolish to you when you order it, like, "Oh, you're going to share that with," and then they'll gesture to possibly the person sitting next to you. Disabuse them of that notion. That's crazy people talk. A, you're here for a giant thing of Valrona chocolate mousse, which is one of the best. Uh, dessert you could possibly ask and for. And you'd expect that kind of question in California where they're hippies, but this is the Midwest. It is built on individualism and a thick layer of fat for the winter. You'd think that they would be the last people to ask if you're going to share the Valrona chocolate mousse, but they will do it. I guess it's that communitarian uh, spirit of, of helping each other build barns or whatever. Yeah, so now in the spirit of a new era, we'll be uh, leaving the ocean air behind so we can tell you about it because we... Uh, if you're all crowding in and competing with each other for table space, that's fine. We just didn't want 
you competing with us. And try the sturgeon. Right. Uh, so, uh, I guess on a few final notes, we were um, always very happy to talk to listeners. We got lots of great head-turning uh, compliments when we're there, and uh, uh, really that, uh, in addition to the comments that you leave on the Patreon site or on our main site, our opportunity to be reminded that uh, we're hanging out with you all uh, when you uh, mow the lawn or do the laundry or uh, do your morning workout is uh, always very gratifying. And uh, the very best compliment I got this year was from a gentleman who uh, told us that he had never been interested in history uh, before this podcast. So uh, that uh, was a really special uh, compliment. So thank you so much. That uh, that makes me feel all arrogant and, and full of pride. Ken, how about you? Um, I also received a similar comment from a, a, a fellow who, after one of my panels, said that um, uh, the, uh, the the podcast had awakened uh, his uh, his previous interest in history. Apparently when he was a kid, he was into it and then he, uh, had it drummed out of him by high school where many people do and college and whatever else. But listening to our podcast had re- reinvigorated it or reawakened it. And it may have been the same guy that talked to you, or we may have reinvigorated the interest in history in two separate people. But this either was, way, I, I heard never interested ever. So I okay. think, so I think we, had, we did. I think we had two separate people to whom we have brought, uh, the attentions of Cleo Muse of history back into their lives. And, uh, that, I mean, we joke around and, and, and we're goofy and everything else, but everything that I do certainly is built from a great and abiding love of terror of and interest in history. And without, uh, history, you might as well just do nothing but watch terrible Star Wars movies for the rest of your life. Um, and, uh, and bad cess to you. Uh, and so to have people who are, you know, listening to us sort of bibble around and, and add time travel and vampires and dragons and stupid things to proper history. And who then say, despite all that foolishness, I really want to know how this battle came out or who that uh, woman was or, or whatever and, and follow it down the trail. That's, that's, that's something that's actually valuable and useful in the world. And I'm not used to doing that. So it makes me happy when people tell me that I do. Right. So I guess that brings me back to reiterate the thing that, the thing I always say about Gen Con and I've already said in this podcast is that it really is all about remembering how much we love gaming and by extension, uh, love each other's as uh, brethren and sistren. And, uh, it really, uh, is always a, an important reminder. And for a game designer, a show like Gen Con is a reminder that, Hey, there are actually people playing our games and people being brought together, uh, by, uh, playing our games. And, uh, that is a psychic fuel. That anybody working in tabletop role playing, I think, needs to bring back home with them, along with their suitcase full of stuff, and to cling to in their months of isolation as they're working away to bring you the new things that will appear on exhibitor tables the next year at uh, Gen Con. Is there anything else mushy or insightful you want to say, Ken? Um, I am fresh out of mush, and as far as insight goes, I did, I've only gotten one nap and one night's sleep so far, Robin, so obviously we are way away from the insight level to return. Okay, so that means uh, we're going to sign off. We'll be back next week, back to our regular format, and uh, probably but a little hint of what we did at Gen Con, because we'll start to roll out those interviews. So thanks, everybody, for uh, listening, for supporting the show at the Ennies. And we'll catch you around next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfageln. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. 
get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such luminaries as Oren Gushuri, Patrick Dawson, Richard Ruain, Paul Richmond, Rafe Ball, and Richard August. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>